Welcome to today's edition of Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast is being brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. Amos chapter 5, verse 1. Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city went out by a thousand, shall leave an hundred. And that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord, and ye shall live lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Ye who turn judgment to wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth, seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion and turneth the shadow of death into the morning and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Forasmuch, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye have take from him burdens of wheat, Ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time. For it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you, as ye have spoken. Hate the evil, and love the good, and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. Throw your ribbon in here. Let's go over to Acts 17 and get some introduction from the book of Acts. Paul is in the middle of ministry, preaching the gospel. If we look at these two passages that are correlating with Amos chapter 5, 
I believe we won't have to do much exposition in Amos 5. You will just see the connections from the New Testament and then the beginnings in the book of Genesis. You have to pay attention to certain words that will ring out here in Acts and certain words that you'll find that are connected in Amos and in the same thing. So in this sermon, I, I'm really just laying out for you the food on the table. There's no feeding going to happen today. I just want to simply lay out the plates, lay out the five-course meal, look at the words. We're all intelligent uh, people. Here we can make the connections ourselves and then see how beautifully the, the Word of God, the New Testament, the Old Testament, and all of them mesh together in, in a wonderful way. We allow, and the best way to do this is to let the Bible teach the Bible. Just sometimes you can just read it and things will connect. We find here in Acts 16 that Paul has been beaten. He's been whipped several times publicly. His back is, is bleeding enough that people are ministering to him. They are washing the blood from his wounds. He has spent some time in prison. And now what's happening is, is a little bit of an interesting twist takes place because they find out who Paul actually is. And so when you look into verse 35 of chapter 16, it says, And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants, saying, Let these men go. And the keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent and let you go now. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But look at the response that Paul has as he's not exiting the prison. Verse 37, But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily? I don't think so. Paul is saying here, I am a Roman citizen and I have rights. And they have broke my rights by beating me as a Roman citizen uncondemned. They have done this under the shadow of darkness and now they're going to try to sweep it under the rug and I don't think so. Paul is standing up with his chest sticking out saying, I have rights and I will not go quietly away into the night. They have cast us into prison and now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. Now look at the response. The sergeants told these words unto the magistrates and they feared. Brothers, I can't repeat this enough. A tyrannical government is absolutely afraid of a church that stands up. Absolutely, they will fear you. The last thing that they want is to have a Bible-believing church stand against sin, stand against oppression, to stand against these things. All the way back to the most corrupt empire of Rome. They feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out. Look what happened. Now they come with their hat in their hand. You're right. They besought them. In other words, they were gentle and they asked them, please. They besought them and brought them out and desired them that they would depart out of the city. Please, please just leave us be. And they went out of the prison and they entered into the house. And then, of course, it wasn't long before chapter 17 happens. Paul, he's not going anywhere uh, because he's steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord like we should be, and a lot of you are. 
And so, of course, it's his manner in verse 2. As his, his manner was, he went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. He's preaching the, the glorious gospel, the very basics, which the church at large is struggling with because we, not us, because I think our church is perfect, but the church at large is struggling with the confrontation of any sort. The gospel is easy to preach to saved people. But it doesn't do any good because they're already saved. I love when I hear from your testimonies and brothers and sisters that are out there sticking their neck out, preaching the gospel, confronting lost people, and, and, they're, and they're doomed. They are doomed. The only way to reach them is by to confront them. And Paul is doing this. And he's doing it before the scabs even have formed on his back. Of course, some of them believe, verse 4, and they consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. So he's, he's, the word is working and God is working and uh, of the chief women, not a few. The women in the Roman Empire were thought of as just cheap commodity. But Jesus Christ and the church is totally changing that. Chief women, not a few. But then look what happens again. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy and took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar. They start a riot. And look what happens. And assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now, Jason stuck his neck out simply by letting them know he was associated with Paul. He wasn't embarrassed of Paul. He wasn't denying that he knew Paul. Yes, I am a friend of Paul, and he's assaulted for it, even though he does not do it. But he's guilty by association because the hatred of lost people to the light and to the gospel is violent. If you're confronting them. Remember Jesus said, woe unto you when all people speak kindly of you. I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Verse 6, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These have turned the world upside down. These men have come hither also, whom Jason has received. Now look what he says here. Jason receives them, and these all do contrary to the de decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people, and the rulers of the city heard these terrible things. Now, they're not just saying there's another king, one Jesus. They're not just saying Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. They're not just saying that because if you look at it, they are also doing things contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They were standing up against Caesar. We will not do these decrees that are debauched. We will not stand and agree with 
public sodomy. We will not stand and agree with pedophilia. We will not do that. We won't stand and agree in unity with homosexuality. We won't do that. And there was a slew of things that were decreed in the Roman Empire. And they wouldn't take it. Because at the end of the day, Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is. Now, you're not going to hear that message very often. Because we need to love people to Jesus. And I'm all for that. The New Testament is a little bit different than that. So file that. File Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17 in your mind. And then let's go over to the beginnings in chapter 46 of Genesis. Because what we're going to see in Amos 5, we're going to see a legal arm. You're going to see the legalities, the rights of the people. You're also going to see in Amos 5, familial. You're going to see family. You're going to see the family together, and you're going to see the, the rights and the legalities, and you're going to see the reality of them merge, because it, this isn't folklore. This isn't story time. These are real people, real laws. Pax Romana existed in the Roman Empire. Pax Americana exists, and we do rule the world. If you look into Genesis chapter 46, we are entering into the story of Joseph. Genesis 46, verse 1, it says, And Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices. Now, Beersheba becomes a very sacred spot for the Jews. They have very sentimental feelings for that. This is We're discussing the Jewish heritage, uh, the land of Beersheba, the city of Beersheba. A lot has happened there. And so the Jewish people and their patriotism are very sentimental about these things, just like we are. They went to Beersheba, and they offered sacrifices unto the God of his father Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night, and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Verse 3, he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. Now, why? The earth is totally populated. There's probably millions and millions of people already on the earth. What's the point? Why is he telling this one little clan of a family, I am God, first of all, the God of your father, Abraham. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt because I will there make of thee a great nation. Is God concerned with numbers? Yes. I will leave the ninety and nine and go after the one. He's concerned with one number of a person, one soul. And he's also here now saying the plan is, is we are going to become massive. We are going to become huge. We are going to be more than the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. The numbers, the masses that will come from his bowels, from his loins, his family. And you think, why? The earth is already populated. What, what, why? And the reason is, is because God in his providence and in his sovereignty just decided to set his love upon them. Because he, he's a loving God. 
And in his sovereignty, he can do what he wants. And I just want to pick one particular nation and love you to death. I mean, love you and bless you to the point where you become the world leader. So I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And then, and then look what happens here. There's a very sentimental moment. Jacob rose up from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel, look at, they carried Jacob, their father, and their little ones, and their wives, in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Now you have to understand, um, Jacob hasn't seen his boy in years. Do you know the, the anticipation that's happening? The family is all gathered around, the little ones, the wives. We're going to see Joseph. It actually shows that the Lord is very tender. Verse 6, And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him. And then look, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. It's very familial. Actually, it's tribal. I have told you from, for the past 20 years, don't send your kids off to school. Do not send your kids off to college in some other state. Because some of them won't come home. Is it worth it? Do you want to have your grandchildren living five states away? Is it worth it? Not in a biblical mindset. The biblical mindset is keep them home, keep them tribal. I want great-granddad to be able to have great-grandson bounce upon his knee because that's more important than making money. His sons, his sons' sons with him, his daughters, his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with them. They're all together, and they travel into Egypt. And then look at down in verse 26. He gives us the numbers. All the souls that came with Jacob into Egypt, which came out of his loins, beside Jacob's sons' wives, all the souls were threescore and six. And the sons of Joseph, which were born him in Egypt, were two souls. All the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten. Seventy. They came into Egypt with 70 people, and they left over a million strong. Over a million. They came, Jacob, the old man, so old, he's carrying and limping on his staff. The grandsons are literally carrying him in a cart. 70 of them, the sons' sons, the sons' sons, the daughters, the granddaughters, all the little kids running and playing with the sheep and the mules, all of his family, 70 of them heading towards Egypt, and they will leave over a million and part through a Red Sea dry. Look over in chapter 48. It came to pass after these things, some years later, that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. There's something about seeing your dad, who has been a strong man from your youth, become feeble and sick. 250-pound man with tats, 
laying in a living room on a hospital bed. That's the news he just got. Your dad is sick. He took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob, now look at how tender this moment is. One told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph is coming unto you. And look what the strong man does. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up upon the bed. He is, he is bedridden at this time. He is dying. He gets word, my, my son is coming to visit. And he gathers up all the strength that he possibly can to sit up in his bed. He's hiding the fact that he's dying. He's, he's being bravado. He's, he's, he's being a man there. Because he knows there's business to attend to. Verse 3, Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee and I will make of thee a multitude of people, thousands upon thousands, and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt, before I came unto thee into Egypt, are mine. Grandpa is saying, those two boys are mine. Now, in the Middle Eastern culture, that means a lot. In the nomadic culture, that means a lot. Because what he is saying is, is these boys are going to receive a rich double inheritance. And in those days, inheritance kept you alive. The farm was passed down family to family to family to family. And generations worked the farm. But he says, these two boys, because they're going to get Joseph's inheritance, but these two boys, they get my inheritance and your inheritance. They are going to be blessed immensely. They are going to carry on the family legacy in a marvelous way. Verse 6, And thy issue which thou begettest after them shall be thine. Those will be your kids. That's fine. And shall be called after the name of their brethren and their inheritance. And verse 7, Mom didn't make it. Because you know the question that Joseph asked when he first saw that his brothers came. How's mom? She didn't make it. Verse 7, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan, in the way. When yet there was but a little way to come, she almost made it to Ephrathah. But I buried her there in the way of Ephrath, the same as Bethlehem. Again, the, the, the city is now more sentimental to them all because that's where the tomb of Rachel is. That's where we buried mom. In Israel, behold, Joseph's sons said, Who are these? He, he saw the boys, the young boys, and, and he, he, he doesn't see them all the way. He doesn't even really know who they are. Isn't that the way that it goes? You know, you see the old timer with the, the, with the great grandkids, and the, the great grandkids never come around. We barely, they, don't, they barely even know them. 
but it's the grandsons. Joseph, verse 9, Joseph said unto his father, These are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee unto me, and I will bless them. And now the eyes of Israel, Jacob, that is the same person, of course, the eyes of Jacob were dim for because of age, so that he could not see them. And he couldn't see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And then you have another moment between dad and his boy. Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face. I never thought I would ever see you again. I thought you were dead for years. And not only have I seen you again, I've seen your kids. My, my grandkids. I had not thought to see thy face, and lo, God hath showed me also thy seed. He has done exceedingly abundantly above all that I can ask or think. We did the legality, and now you see the family. And so when you come into Amos, then it makes a whole lot more sense when Amos 5, verse 1, rings. Because he starts this paragraph with, Hear ye this word, which I take up against you, even a lamentation. This is suffering, crushing grief. Like the Psalms and the Psalter, it's supposed to strike your emotion. You're supposed to study and read God's word and let it strike you in the heart to the point where your life is changed. And when he says, I've taken this up, as a lamentation, we have to understand the background of what's happening to cause the emotion of a lamentation. So you can't just go through. You have to study and know what is happening in the context for it to actually work so that the Spirit can work in our lives. It's a lament, even a lamentation. Oh, house of Israel, the virgin of Israel is fallen. She shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. A young girl has been abused and beaten, left out to die, and she's laying there near death. And she's the virgin of Israel, meaning... She's in her prime. She's in the flower of her youth. And she has not had child. See the opposite of already what's happening in Genesis? This is sad. We know people who have gone through great strides to become pregnant. And they can't. And these days, we all know that if a woman goes childish, it's an embarrassment even. It's a reproach, let alone the heartache of within. But this is a lamentation. This is Israel that is supposed to be more than the sand of the sea, more than the stars of the sky. And he's saying, actually, as of now, she's a virgin that's all bleeding to death, laying in the dirt. And then he says in three, as if something already happened. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred. And that which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. He's saying this as if it already happened. He's saying, look, 
only a tenth of the people will survive. I occasionally look through films of 9-11. Because we're told, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. But we do forget. So it's refreshing to just kind of go back and see what happened that day. The carnage. The people who jumped off the buildings and landed in the street on the sidewalk. They say that the average working day, there's 50,000 people in the trade towers. 50,000. Could you imagine if there were 50-some thousand people in the trade tower that died? The carnage? Now multiply that by 50 and then put that in every American city. And you still don't register of what's about to happen here in Israel. A tenth of the people will survive. That means if they're averaging about a million, of course, 900,000 people will be butchered. We as Americans have been sheltered from invasion. We have been sheltered from war. We have been sheltered from famine. We've been sheltered from drought because God has blessed us beyond measure. We know not what it's like to see all of your family, all of them, laying in the house, shot dead because they went and did house-to-house clearing. That's what's here. And then verse 4, he gives a desperate invitation. For thus saith the Lord... Unto the house of Israel, seek ye me, and ye shall live. Verse 5, but seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not into Beersheba. These were the sentimental cities of the Jew. This was the patriotism. This was their place to go. This was religious centers at one time, but they all the religious centers went bad. They went apostate. All the churches that they used to love now do not preach the gospel. They don't preach the truth, but they're still full, and they're going there as if this is good, and it's not. He's saying, don't go to the shrines. Don't go there. Seek me. But it's so difficult because they cherish these places. There's sentimental attachments to these places. In verse 6, seek the Lord, the prophet is saying, and you shall live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph. Oh, why does he say that? Why doesn't he say the house of Israel? Why doesn't he say the house of Jacob or the God of Abraham? But instead he picks Joseph. Because the readers automatically in their mind go back to those chapters that we just read. God has designed it and he's saying, this is what I'm saying. And you're very familiar with the later chapters of Genesis. They would have known it and now we know it. He's striking a chord of emotion. He's striking the idea of, hey, this isn't, they're not a bunch of numbers. These are their family. Moms, dads, grandpas, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, people that you know. You know how much different when you hear of a catastrophe or a death when you actually know the person? And also, isn't it interesting that God Almighty designates one chapter to creating all of the universe. Genesis 1. He devotes a whole chapter to the creation of all things. 
And do you realize he designates, I think, around 12 or 13 full chapters just to the life of Joseph? And he's bringing it to your memory. Seek the Lord and you'll live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph. And devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Ye who turn judgment into wormwood. And you, this verse is just absolutely astounding. When you realize what he just said, you turn judgment into wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth. Wormwood, translated in the Ukrainian dialect, means Chernobyl. And what he is saying there is wormwood is a plant that is so noxious that if you accidentally eat it, it makes you vomit to the point as a cancer patient who has been plagued with chemo. It makes you so nauseous. And so you see that God in his sovereignty, and, and, and he named a, a nuclear plant Chernobyl, which actually in the English is wormwood. God is not mocked whatsoever, man. So at that shall he also reap. God is not mocked. You turn judgment to wormwood. The judgment that they are doing is so corrupt that it's to the point of nausea. And then he, he appeals the prophet to God's majesty. Seek him that makes the seven stars of Orion. Think of the constellations that are in the sky in the night and turneth the shadow of death into mourning the people die and in a twinkling of an eye they are in the morning sunshine and maketh the day dark with night he controls all things that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth he's talking of the mass evaporation from the entire planet creates the clouds and then rains upon our lives the lord is his name this same Lord that strengthens the spoiled against the strong, that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. The Lord of glory strengthens us who are weak so that we can confute them. For we are but dust. But we're his dust. And then you have some reasonings that are why. Because they hate him that rebuketh in the gate. They hate him that rebukes in the gate. What's the gate? The gate of the city is where all the business takes place. It's the capital of the city. All the town business, the banker, the businessman, the government, the town politics happen at the gate. All the people who are something do business in the gate. And let me tell you, they hate anyone who rebukes anyone in the gate. And they abhor him that speaks uprightly. It's one thing to embarrass a corrupt politician in private. But don't think about doing it at the gate. Don't you dare defy the decrees of Caesar. Acts chapter 18. Because they hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. Forasmuch, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, 
You take from him burdens of wheat. They are extorting people who are poor. The people that were there were corrupt as can be. They, and it says, you have built houses of stone. We have seen this. Brothers, we see people in the U.S. Senate and in the U.S. Congress who, who how in the world do they make the millions? They live in the mansions that are guarded with guards. There's nothing new under the sun. Of course, we have very, very good people who serve there as well. And brothers and sisters that are working for our side. Praise the Lord for that. There should be more of us doing it. Because if there would have been more doing it here, they would have lived. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, they afflict the just, they take a bribe. It's like reading today's newspaper. Although we call them lobbyists. Thanks for your help. They're lobbyists. They take a bribe and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their rights. Do you see? Again, Acts chapter, that's what Paul is saying. I have rights. I'm a Roman citizen. You beat me openly and I'm not leaving quietly. We have rights. The poor have rights. And they're being trampled. The poor in the gate from their right. Therefore, now look at this. This is also a staggering statement. Therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time. For it is an evil time. Well, I thought we were supposed to, you know, stand up and make our voices heard. Not here. It's too late. There is coming a time. Right now we are to stand up and make our voices heard. But brothers and sisters, there's coming a time when you don't do that anymore. Uh, the prudent shall keep silent because at that time it'll be so bad that you're not going to be working on defense. You're not going to be the defender. You're just going to try to stay alive. The window has shut. The door has shut. Don't stand up. You don't have a chance. Just hide and try to stay alive. Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. So seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto what's left of the family of Joseph. You've been listening to Time in the Vineyard with Pastor Teacher Jeff Toring. Today's broadcast was brought to you from the pulpit of Liberty Valley Church, Northfield, Ohio. For more information, you can call the church at 330-554-7606.
or check us out on the web at libertyvalleychurch.org. That's libertyvalleychurch.org.